Let me invite you to turn your attention with me this evening to the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament and to the first chapter and to the final six verses of that chapter. Paul's first epistle, his first letter to the church in the ancient city of Corinth, chapter 1, and we'll read verses 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Father, this is part of what preaching is, is to boast in you, to boast in your Son, And so, God, I pray by the power of your Spirit that you will help me from this passage to boast in you, to boast in your Son, and that you would work so that we would be moved to boast in you, all of us, ourselves. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I think you'll agree with me that the primary purpose, or at least one of the two primary purposes of these few verses and of the truths that these verses proclaim, one of the primary purposes is to close mouths, to close mouths. Paul reminds the Corinthians here of their humble beginnings, of their lowly origins, of their ignoble and foolish pasts in verses 26, 27, and 28, so that they will not be tempted, verse 29, to brag, so that their mouths will be closed to boasting. In other words, he reminds the Corinthians of who they were by nature, so that they will not be tempted to boast about who they are when who they are is by grace. God has chosen the foolish things, Paul says, God has chosen the weak things and the base things and the despised God has chosen. Why? Well, a couple of reasons are given here, but one of them is to close the mouth of pride among those who are chosen. God has chosen the foolish things. God has chosen the weak things and the base things and the despised things God has chosen so that, verse 29, no man may boast before God. And so you see that God did what he did in his choosing of the Corinthians, and Paul reminded the Corinthians that God did what he did in order to close mouths, in order to muzzle boasting. And then, not only does Paul seek to gag the mouth of boasting by reminding the Corinthians of who they were, But then also in verse 30, he does so by reminding them that who they are is not actually their own doing. He says that it is by his doing. 
you are in Christ Jesus. By God's doing, you are who you are. In other words, yes, Corinthians, you are no longer as foolish, you are no longer as weak, you are no longer as base as you once were. You are new creatures, and everything has changed for you. But who made you thus? Who was it who brought you this far? It wasn't your doing, Paul says. It was rather by God's doing you are in Christ Jesus. God is the one who lifted you off the trash heap. God is the one who selected you from the bottom of the class, Corinthians. God is the one who has made you who you are. And furthermore, verse 30, he has done so in Christ. So that, yes, you are far wiser than you once were. You are now righteous in God's sight. You are set apart as holy to the Lord, and you're becoming more like Jesus all the time. You've been redeemed from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers. All of that in verse 30 is true, but none of these changes in status, Paul says, belong to you, Corinthians, you yourselves at root level. Because ultimately it is Christ who became your wisdom. It is Christ who became your righteousness. It is Christ who became your sanctification. And it is Christ who became your redemption. And the message is the same for us, isn't it? It is God in Christ who has made us spiritually noble, if that's what we are. If we are no longer foolish, base, despised, and so on, it is because of God in Christ intervening in our lives by his doing you are in Christ Jesus so that verse 31 just as it is written let him who boasts boast in the Lord and so you see that this passage is not merely meant to close mouths but it's also meant to open them it's meant to close mouths to muzzle our boasting in ourselves, yes, but then it's also meant to magnify our boasting in the Lord. The church at Corinth, as you may know, was something of a problem child for the Apostle Paul. And one of their greatest problems, if you read this book of 1 Corinthians, one of their greatest issues was the problem of spiritual pride. Boasting in themselves, boasting in their spiritual pedigrees in chapter 1, boasting later in the book in their spiritual gifts. And there are multiple problems with spiritual pride, but one of the chief is that spiritual pride promotes boasting in something other than Christ. Boasting in someone or something other than God. And so Paul reminds the Corinthians both of where they came from and of how it is that God is the one who brought them where they are so that they will close their mouths to their personal boasting and open them to boasting in the Lord. And tonight, though much of the oomph of this passage is geared toward the closing of the mouth, tonight I just want to zero in on this idea of the opening of our mouths to boast in the Lord. Verse 31, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And specifically, what I want to do tonight is to notice these four reasons for boasting in Christ that are given to us in verse 30. These four spiritual blessings that Christ has not only conferred upon us, 
but that he has actually, verse 30, become for us. Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So let's think those four blessings out together now, beginning with Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. Wisdom from God. Remember that Paul has just reminded the Corinthians in verse 26 that among their church family, quote, there were not many wise according to the flesh in the church at Corinth. Most of the people in the church at Corinth evidently had not come from the highly educated classes. There were not many graduates of Harvard and Stanford sitting in the pews Sunday to Sunday in Corinth. And then notice also that even those who had that kind of pedigree, perhaps, even those who were worldly wise, because he doesn't say no one was wise in Corinth. It was just that there weren't many wise. But even those who were considered worldly wise, they have also just heard Paul reminding them up in verse 20 that God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. Or of the world. And in verse 25, they have heard that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. So that even the wise, quote unquote, in Corinth, even those who were well educated, as Paul himself was, you may remember, even those who would have been in this class of being wise and noble are being reminded in this first chapter of Corinth you're not as wise, you're not as noble as you think. And neither are we, as they will go on to discover in chapter 2, verse 14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. You may be the wisest natural man in the world, but the things of God will still make no sense to you with all your worldly wisdom because they are spiritually appraised. We're not as wise as we think. And so here's the church at Corinth. And just like every church that ever was planted, every church that ever ever gathered in the name of Jesus, the church of Corinth is made up of people like us who were naturally foolish. Some of them foolish by the world's standards, and all of them desperately foolish when it came to the things of God, unless God intervened. So here are these people. They are naturally foolish, But now, they are spiritually wise because of Christ Jesus, who became to them wisdom from God. And that's how it works. Have you noticed that now that you're a Christian, certain things just make sense to you? Certain things... Many of them that seem now almost commonsensical, but they weren't common sense to you before. And they aren't, they patently aren't common sense to many of your neighbors. Things that have to do with morality, 
things connected with family life, things that relate to the world's origins, things that are of the essence of the simple gospel message, things concerning the character of God. They're so obvious to you now. They make sense to you now when you read them in the scriptures, but they may not have made sense to you before, and they don't make sense to the people that you work with now. There was a time when these things, they were either a mystery to you, or they were just of no concern to you, or maybe they seem like outright foolish to you, but now... By God's doing, you get it. And that's not because of you, Paul says, nor first of all even because you've gotten a new Christian education, though we do get educated in Christ and we must, but the root source of your wisdom is not in an education, it's in a person. Isn't that what he's saying? By his doing, you're in Christ Jesus who... A person who became to us wisdom from God. The root of our wisdom is in a person. In fact, the text of verse 30 is written in such a way as to say not just that our wisdom comes from a person, but that the person is actually our wisdom. Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Or, as we have it up in verse 24, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Jesus, in other words, not only grants us wisdom, but Jesus is our wisdom. And so, we turn to the Gospels and to the other 62 books of the Bible, which all speak of Jesus as well, and we observe the way Jesus lived, and the way he honored his Father, the way he loved people, the way he resisted temptation, the way he gave himself for sinners, the way he trusted God in the face of death, even death on a cross, the way he handled himself on that cross. And we look at Jesus from all 66 books of the Bible, and what do we see? We see the wisdom of God. We see Wisdom, the same wisdom that is recorded all throughout the Bible in God's words, here in Jesus is that wisdom now overflowing in and from and through a person, Christ, the wisdom of God. That's why, you know, we read in Proverbs 4 a few moments ago that wisdom is better than gold and silver and precious jewels. And you may have listened to those verses in Proverbs 3. I said 4, Proverbs 3. And you may have thought of that song that we sometimes sing where we're calling God more precious than silver and gold and precious jewels. And you may have said, well, it's about wisdom or is it about God? Jesus is Wisdom, the wisdom of God personified, which is why we sing about wisdom and we put it in the second person and we sing to him because he is the wisdom of God. And when this Christ has come into our lives, we open the Bible or we come here and we listen to a sermon and we find out that we're not only reading about Jesus, that we're not only hearing about Jesus, but that in the reading of the scriptures and in the preaching of the scriptures, we are encountering Jesus himself. We're coming to meet with Jesus. We're coming to know Jesus. We're coming to hear from Jesus. We are beginning to fellowship with Jesus. And with this Jesus living in us, fellowshipping with us, teaching us, 
as the wisdom of God personified, the wisdom that is written in this book and the wisdom that is built into God's created order start to make more and more and more sense to us all the time. And our ability to apply this wisdom to our own lives and to what we see around us in the world becomes all the more perceptive. We begin to have the mind of Christ and to think God's thoughts after him such that we begin to be able Chapter 2, verse 15, to appraise all things, to make sense of all things. Because Christ, the person, has come into our lives and he has become our wisdom. And so, by God's doing, Christ became to us, first of all, wisdom from God. And that is reason to open our mouths in verse 31 and boast in the Lord. But then notice that Paul also says that Christ became to us righteousness. Christ became to us righteousness. Now, just as we are by nature foolish and not wise, so we are also by nature sinful and not righteous. We don't have any righteousness of our own. We don't have any merit of our own, whereby we could stand before a holy God and claim that we're clean, claim that we're upright, claim that we don't deserve his judgment, which puts us in a fix because we need that, don't we? If we are going to stand before God's judgment seat someday and not be melted in the blast furnace of his righteous anger, we need to be righteous in his sight. We need to be justified is the New Testament way of putting it. And this righteousness, this justification, is just what Christ came to provide, isn't it? Christ lived sinlessly, and Christ died sacrificially, absorbing the sins that our, uh, the, the punishment that our sins deserve, not only so that we might be forgiven, not only, in other words, so that our sins might be wiped away, not only so that our slates might be wiped clean, but also he died and he lived so that we might be counted as positively righteous in God's sight. In other words, it's not just that God has forgiven our sin debts and brought our spiritually deficit bank accounts out of the deficit and back up to break even zero. That would be good news, wouldn't it? For God to forgive your debt? Well, that's what he's done in Christ. But that's not all he's done. In addition to forgiving your debt, it's also that your account has been filled up with the treasury of Christ's merit, with all of the riches of his righteousness credited to your account. Not because of anything you've done, but because of God's mercy. Now, that's not to say that we actually become righteous like Jesus when we come to faith or that we become righteous fully like Jesus at any point in this life. The righteousness that we're talking about right now is an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness. It's a righteousness that's credited to us. We are treated as righteousness apart from our being righteous or even becoming righteous ourselves. Now, God does also work so that we become righteous in our behavior, and we'll come to that under the next heading. But for now, we're talking about not how God makes us righteous, but about how and why he declares us righteous, how and why he treats us 
righteous. And what we're saying is that in Christ, God declares us, God treats us, God reckons us, not only as forgiven and brought back to square one, but God treats us as though we were righteous, like Jesus. To use another analogy that I've given you more than once through the years, if your record before God were on a giant blackboard, written in, filled in with every sin that you've ever committed, and it would be a giant blackboard, right? But if, if your record was written on this giant blackboard, the idea here is not only that God has in Christ erased all the sins from it so that your slate is clean, but that he has also written in place of those sins all the righteous merit of Jesus. So that when God looks at you, you are not only forgiven and treated as a person with a neutral record, you are declared positively righteous in his sight and treated accordingly in the courtroom of heaven. The verse doesn't say simply that by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and forgiveness. It says that he became to us wisdom from God and positive righteousness. And again, the name for all of this is the doctrine of justification, and it's a wonderful doctrine. Christ's own righteousness credited to our account. And it's reason, verse 31, to boast in the Lord, isn't it? But as we think about it tonight from verse 30, let's notice, as we did with wisdom, that Paul doesn't treat this righteousness just as something that Christ gives to us. No, Paul actually says that Righteousness is not a thing that Christ gives to us. Paul actually says that Christ is our righteousness. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. In other words, the righteousness that is credited to your account, if you believe in Jesus, the righteous status that is imputed to you is not just a concept. It's not just that God treats you as a hypothetical righteous person should be treated because the righteous person that he's thinking of is not hypothetical. The righteousness that God credits to your account if you're in Christ is the righteousness actually lived out by Christ perfectly and without fail under all manner of duress and temptation over a span of 33 marvelous years, the most marvelous years that ever were lived. That is the righteousness credited to your account. That is our righteousness. Or better yet, he, the man Christ Jesus, is our righteousness. When God looks at you who are in Christ, he sees you not just as conceptually righteous. He sees you through the lens of his son. He sees Christ himself as your righteousness. He sees his son's life lived in your place. He sees his son's merit in place of your demerit. You are not just draped in a generic robe of righteousness, but you are draped in the very righteous robes of Jesus himself. He became to us wisdom from God and righteousness. And so just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then not only has Christ become our wisdom and our righteousness, but also our sanctification. Our sanctification by his doing. Verse 30, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness 
and sanctification. It is a gospel guarantee, you know, that if you have been justified, if you have been credited with the righteousness of Christ, if you had been counted righteous in Christ, as we've just been discussing, it is a gospel guarantee that you will also gradually, over time, begin to live out the righteousness of Christ in your daily behavior. They're not the same thing, justification and sanctification, but they always go together. God has prepared good works ahead of time, Ephesians 2, verse 10, that we would walk in them. And the process of beginning to walk in those good works, the process of continuing to walk in them and walk in them all the more, the process of becoming more like Jesus, the process of becoming more holy in our daily walk is called sanctification, which comes from the Latin word sanctus, which means holy. Sanctification means becoming more holy. Just like God said, you shall be holy even as I am holy. Because sanctification is an indispensable part of God's salvation of the human soul. We must grow in holiness. And we will grow in holiness if we truly belong to Christ. And of course, it requires effort. Justification is, as we sing, not what my hands have done, right? Horatius Bonner had that just right. Not what my hands have done. That's justification. Sanctification requires the effort of your hands and your mind and your heart and your will and your feet. It requires cutting off your hand if your hand causes you to sin, plucking out your eye, pursuing sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Sanctification requires sweat and work and discipline on our part. But... Here's the thing, according to 1 Corinthians 1.30. All the sweat, all the work, all the discipline, all the pursuit of sanctification, though it is real on our part, and though we really are doing it, we're not doing it ourselves. We're not doing it in our own strength, even if sometimes we fancy that we are. In Christ, we're not doing it ourselves. Because it is Christ, says our text, who is our sanctification. By which I think Paul means not only that Christ's death freed us from the power of sin, and not only that Christ's rising enables us to walk in newness of life. In other words, not only that the things that Jesus has already accomplished enable us to put away sin and walk into righteousness, but I think Paul is also getting at the fact that it is Christ himself by his spirit who lives in us day by day, motivating and energizing all of our pursuit of sanctification. When Paul says that Christ has become our sanctification, he's not saying, you know, if you want to be more holy, just ask Jesus to make you more holy and he'll zap you and it will work. You have to work out your salvation, as he says in another of his epistles. But it is God who is at work in you. It is Christ who is at work in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. That's what Paul was saying in Galatians 2.20 when he wrote those famous words, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
In other words, what Paul is saying is, it's not ultimately me animating all the good things that are happening in my life. It's Christ living his life in me. So that while, yes, in a very real and vital sense, I am the one fighting sin. Yes, in a very real and vital sense, I am the one who has to pluck out my eye if it causes me to stumble. And yet also in a very real and vital sense, and in an even more vital sense, actually, it is Christ in me who is doing the work of sanctification. And again, notice, it's not just Christ's example that motivates me, though that's true. It's not just a Christ principle that lives in me. It is Christ himself, according to verse 30, who is my sanctification. It is Christ himself who is willing and working so that I will work out my salvation. And so even in this area of my Christian life where I must do and where I must contribute Even in my own growth in Christ's likeness, of which I have a vital part, no man may boast before God. For it is not ultimately me, but Christ in me, who is my sanctification. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then notice finally that Christ also became not only our wisdom, our righteousness, and our sanctification, but our redemption. Christ Jesus, verse 30, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, the word redemption in the Bible refers, to put it plainly, a buyback. Redemption is a buyback. And the classic picture of this buyback is the prophet Hosea, whose wife, Gomer, was selling her body down on the street corner. And Hosea, we find, marches up to her handler's desk and plunks down the coin that is required to get her off the streets to get her out of that horrid dress, to get her away from these men who use her, and to bring her home again so that they might live together as man and wife once again. That is redemption. The buying of someone back, sometimes out of slavery, in this case with Hosea, out of the sex industry, sometimes out of the destitution of widowhood, as in the book of Ruth. To be redeemed, to experience redemption, is to be pulled out of a desperate situation and made whole again. So just think of how different Gomer's life became after Hosea entered into her raunchy world and emptied those 15 silver coins out on that pimp's table and took her home, and got her a bath, and gave her clean clothes, and now she had her own bed again. And maybe best of all, Hosea treated her like a wife, and not like a harlot. He forgave her. He restored her. He gave her a future and a hope, and he paid a price that it would all be so. That's a picture of redemption, and that's a picture of us, and of our bridegroom, isn't it? He became for us redemption. 
He came into our raunchy world and he plunked down the price to set us free. Not a bag of silver, not a a sack of barley like Hosea. He plunked down his own life's blood so that we might have a bath spiritually, so that we might be free from slavery, so that we might have a family tonight, so that we might have a home with him, so that we might have a fresh start, so that we might be his bride instead of the devil's call girl. And note, he didn't send an angel to do it. He didn't send a prophet like Hosea to do this buyback. And he didn't come and ransom us with some bartering tool like silver or barley. He actually opened up his veins and bought us back with himself. He is the purchase price of our freedom. He, the text says, is our redemption. Some of you who are believers tonight can well remember your harlotries. You can remember, you can picture days, seasons, maybe even years of your life when the record that was being written on the blackboard of your life was a sordid, ugly record indeed. Indeed, you'd be so ashamed if everyone could read your blackboard tonight, and I would be ashamed if you could read mine. But by the grace of God, you're here tonight. You're not as changed as you would like to be, but you're not living anywhere near the gutters you once lived in. All because of one man who gave himself. A bridegroom who did not give up on you. A bridegroom who became in his very self your redemption. And he is worth boasting about, is he not? Some of you might still be in your harlotries even now. Secretly living in ways that you would be so ashamed of if it all came out. But I tell you that even in spite of that, Christ can be your redemption. Christ will be your redemption if you will but call on him in faith. He's already come into this sin-sick world to pour out his blood as our redemption price. And tonight in this sermon, it may be that he is quietly making his way through the streets right up to your very street corner where you've been selling yourself. And he will take you home with him tonight if you will but have him. He will take you off that corner and out of your mess of sin if you will but put your hand in his hand and go with him as your redeemer and your bridegroom. And then you will have something to boast about too. It's so delightful if you're around a young couple, maybe they're newly married, maybe headed that way, and the young lady is just so impressed, so enamored, so willing to boast about this man that has come into her life, the way he takes care of her, the way he surprises her with his kindnesses, the way he does practically everything right in her eyes. She writes all about it on Instagram and Facebook and so on. Just singing his praises is, is beautiful. And hopefully she'll still be saying those things and he'll still be doing them 17 years down the road. But isn't this how it ought to be with Christ, our bridegroom? We really can't think of enough good things to say about him, can we? And frankly, we ought to want to let everyone know just how thrilled we are to be His. And we have reason to be thrilled. We have reason to be. By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By God's doing, you have been betrothed forever to the very Son of God. 
to him who is outstanding among 10,000, Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord.